The Restoration and Empowerment for Social Transition Center is a Peel Region nonprofit organization serving BIPOC youth who are either experiencing or are at risk of experiencing homelessness, supporting them to change their story, discover new possibilities, and shelter dignity. This podcast, Homelessness and Hiding Our Youth Between the Cracks, is an uncensored discussion of content that may not be appropriate for all listeners. Personal discretion is advised. Hello and welcome to Homelessness and Hiding, Our Youth Between the Cracks, a podcast discussing youth homelessness in our communities while elevating the voices of those with lived experience and the people on the front lines fighting against it. In this episode, we continue our breakdown of food insecurity, but this time we take the conversation beyond the dinner table. From social stigma to long-term impacts, food insecurity is about more than just food, especially for our next generation of leaders. Today, we sit down with Kirsten Beardsley, the CEO of Food Banks Canada, a national organization that supports food banks across Canada and advocates for the end of food insecurity altogether. She shares the history of food banking in Canada, the importance of supporting food banks, and the systemic and societal impacts of food insecurity in the long run. Hello, Kirsten. Welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm good, thanks. How are you doing? I'm good. We are recording this on a nice and bright Wednesday morning, and the sun looks deceivingly warm because it's cold outside, but maybe I need the cold because I'm a little tired, so. I love this weather, so I'm good. I'm good. (laughs) I can't wait to get out there later today, but for now, I'm here talking to you, and I'm just as excited for that. So, with that, could you please introduce yourself and your connection to the topic of food insecurity and homelessness? Of course. So my name is Kirsten Beardsley. I am the CEO of Food Banks Canada, which is a national organization that both looks at supporting food banks across the country, but also advocating for um, the reduction or the ending of food insecurity in Canada. And of course, you know, I think that it definitely relates to the issue of homelessness, food insecurity and homelessness are very intertwined. Um, People who are food insecure um, often experience homelessness and vice versa. Um, And also, I think it's just about the the work we do together to try to make this world a better place for all of the folks um, who live here. So yeah, it's just, it's, it's all connected. Are you able to elaborate a little more on what Food Banks Canada is as an organization? Yes, of course. So Food Banks Canada is an organization that was founded by by the food banks at the original sort of set of food banks. So food banking in Canada was founded in 1981 in Edmonton. So we're about 41 years old today. And Food Banks Canada, the idea was the original food bankers really didn't think that food banking would be around forever. Um, They were established to meet tough economic times in the early 80s, and they were there to support neighbors who needed access to food. And the hope was, as we collect data and understand why folks are are falling into um, situations, why the social safety net is not able to support these people, we would fix the social safety net and food banks would not be a necessary service across the country and so um, would close their doors. And that wasn't happening. And so what the, the food bankers came together and established Food Banks Canada really as a voice to advocate for social change. Um, so we've always had a mandate to 
work with governments um, in Ottawa to try to get the social safety net fixed. The other side of our mission, so we have this two-part mission, relieving hunger today and preventing it tomorrow. So the first part is really about supporting the food banks across the country, making sure that there is access to food, uh, making sure the food banking system is strong for as long as we're needed while we're still advocating for that long-term change. Wow. I appreciate a mission. Um, I'm I'm a huge fan of coalitions because I like how it can bring a lot of unifying energy to different organizations um, in a space and they can all attack an issue from the same front. Um, the PL Alliance and Homelessness actually is an example of that. That would be Daphne Nussbaum's territory for those of you who know her. Um, we also have the Canadian Alliance and Homelessness, which is very similar. And that would be Michelle Billick, who was on episodes eight and 15. But speaking of previous appearances of my lovely, lovely guests, you were on the news recently, correct? (laughs) Yeah, so um, Food Banks Canada has for decades now been publishing a hunger count report, um, which is a count of the people who are using food banks across the country on an annual basis. So it's one month of the year, we do March, which is sort of a fairly typical month. Um, and we we use it as a way of understanding the depth of need across the country. So our hunger count 2022 was recently uh, published and um, it provides, you know, it's honestly pretty devastating um, because of the numbers that we're seeing of people using food banks across the country, but it did also get a lot of attention. So um, if you go to foodbankscanada.ca, you can you can read the hunger count report or the highlights as well. Thank you. And we will also link it down below in the description. So ahead of us starting our conversation today, what are you hoping for our listeners to take away primarily? I think it's just, you know, I think you've got an audience that is clearly interested in in supporting people and in understanding some of the issues around homelessness and just raising a bit of awareness about the depth of food insecurity in Canada, uh, what food banks do and are up to. And, you know, honestly, it's it's about building, like you said, a coalition or a movement around how we can address some of the underlying causes of food insecurity in Canada so that fewer people need food banks um, and just fewer people are in, remain in need. All right. Thank you. So what does it mean to be food insecure? Right. So when I talk about food insecurity, I try to remind folks that in general, food insecurity is not about food. It's about lack of income. It's about poverty. Um, And so when you look at those definitions, um, they're really important that it is really about not having access to the incomes to be able to choose the food that you want to consume for yourself or for your household or your family. Um, so what it means to be food insecure, it's it's a spectrum, as you said. So on the marginal end, you've got folks who are, you know, stressed out in general. These are people who are, you know, maybe not yet compromising their, the food that they're taking in or missing meals yet, but worried about where's my next meal going to come from? Can I make it all work? Um, and then moderate is, you know, people who are making choices that they don't want to have to make. Um, this is often, you know, parents giving their kids food that is just is cheap and fills tummies, but not necessarily um, offering the nutritional value that they would like to offer. 
And then, um, as you said, with severe food insecurity, it's people being in a more extreme position of actually having to skip meals um, because they don't have money to put food on the table. So but being food insecure has a lot of implications for a person's life, but underlying it really is poverty, low incomes, and the systemic barriers that create poverty and low incomes in Canada. The other piece is, is on the human side is just that there are consequences beyond the day-to-day. -day. This isn't about an individual feeling of hunger. This is about experiences of chronic stress. If you're worried about feeding yourself or your families, this is about kids who are in positions where they might be going to school without food and then inability to concentrate and some of the behavioral issues. So food insecurity isn't an individual problem. It's a so social, like a society level problem and a systemic issue that we really need to address because it's not a once-off issue or an individual issue. It really is an issue that impacts all of us, whether we experience it or not. I have a little question about the last thing you said. It's an experience that impacts all of us, whether we experience it or not. Could you explain a little more about how food insecurity stands to impact everyone in the society or in a community, even if someone doesn't experience it themselves? And I'll kind of contextualize this with a buzzword we like on the show, and that is NIMBYism, N-I-M-B-Y-ism. And for those who are new here, first of all, hi, welcome. Nice to meet you. <laughs> and second of all, NIMBYism stands for not in my backyard. And essentially, to summarize, NIMBYism speaks to the idea of people not really seeing that an issue is real or validating it as something that happens because they either don't experience it or they don't see it themselves. And it's essentially, to put it in another way, it's out of sight, out of mind. So could you explain how someone who maybe doesn't see it every day, how they're still impacted by food insecurity? Yeah, it, absolutely. And I think it does require us to see ourselves as humans in community. But on a very basic level, everyone knows someone who is food insecure. You know, the numbers speak for themselves. These are kids going to your kid's school. These are your neighbors. These are people that all of us know. And, you know, I think of it in some ways as, you know, lost opportunity. How can we have, you know, just a fully functioning society when some people aren't given the opportunity to thrive because there's, they don't have food? I mean, it just seems so basic. Um, to me, you know, you can look at schools, there's, there's quite good research about how um, a lack of food impacts kids behavior in the classroom. Um, there are long term impacts when you have, you know, when you've been identified as a, a kid with a behavioral issue. So it's just, we need to see this as a societal issue. And, you know, that's one of the spirits that I try to I think about the original food bankers a lot and what they were trying to do. And that was, you know, that sort of anti-nimbyism was, was part of the spirit. It was absolutely, these are my neighbors and this isn't going to happen on my watch. These people are not going to go hungry while I've got the resources to help them. And I think food banking is somewhat like that. It's, it's about sort of addressing the issues head on. Um, but yeah, I think we can't ignore this. And I will say that I think food insecurity has suffered from this in the last 40 years. So, you know, the original food bankers got out there and were 
you know, it was a new, um, new model for providing service and they got some attention, but in general, food insecurity is a quiet problem. So people don't talk about their trip to the food bank. They don't talk about, um, you know, how many meals they missed. Um, you don't know which kids at your kids' schools are, are coming to school without lunch and just saying they forgot their lunch. And I think we need to, while not sort of, while respecting people's dignity, we need to talk about this issue because it is way more prevalent than I think a lot of folks realize. Mm. I like the note on dignity, actually, because REST's tagline is shelter dignity. And what we mean when we say that is to protect the dignity of those experiencing homelessness, because to experience homelessness is not something that should be shameful. It's not something that people should be ashamed of. It's something that is really a symptom of circumstance. They've fallen on bad times. It's not their fault. And they shouldn't be made to feel to feel inadequate because of the homelessness they may have experienced or the bad experiences they may have had that have led them to be at risk of homelessness or to have experienced homelessness. And I think that's absolutely transferable to the idea of food insecurity. Yeah, it's, I mean, I will say this is, you know, the times are tough out there and, and the use of food banks is, is really high. Um, but on this dignity piece, I mean, I agree with you 100%. I don't think anyone should feel badly about using food banks or other community programs, whatever it is that they need. And what's heartbreaking in some of the research we did in the spring was the number of people who both were saying that they're either skipping meals or eating less than they should, but didn't use a community program. And it was because they felt... Um, you know, they felt they probably, you know, someone else needed it more um, or, you know, they didn't, they didn't know if, if what they were going through made, made them qualify for services. And so I actually think that's a huge part of the work ahead for, for some of our food banks is just making sure that communities understand that we're here to support them. Um, and that, yeah, like you said, food insecurity, when you have 16% of a population experiencing an issue, it's not an individual issue. It's a, it's a social issue. And so we need to address it at the social level and make people and make sure people have access to the services they need today while we're fighting um, at the system level to end it. Absolutely. And kind of going back a little bit to speak, um, I guess, to speak about it at a more systemic level, you may be able to speak to this with the amount of research that Food Banks Canada has conducted. You mentioned earlier that food insecurity is something that probably at least one person you have met in your life or you currently know in your life is experiencing but isn't talking about. And you mentioned um, sometimes it's a child going to school um, and saying they forgot their lunch when there in fact was not, or when there in fact was no food for them to bring to school. And so I guess I have a multifaceted question. How have you personally seen, either with Food Banks Canada or beyond, like in your personal life, how have you seen the impacts or the effects of food insecurity? And specifically, how have you seen the impacts or effects of food insecurity in children versus adults? Yeah, it does make sense. And it, um, I think for me, the impacts, when I think of food insecurity and, you know, it's it's all about people. So I... So I should I should mention that Food Banks Canada we have a network of food banks across the country so there are 
there are provincial food banking organizations in every province, and then there are about 1,300 food banks across Canada right now, and they serve in turn, you know, another 20, 2,500 or so community organizations provide food to those organizations. Um, so food banking, it's a very diverse project across the country. You know, it looks quite different in, you know, Mississauga than it would in a small town in Newfoundland or in sort of Nunavut. Um, so it's hard sometimes to speak in generalities, but I, you know, I get out um, into the network and, and visit food banks a fair bit, which I'm completely lucky um, to be able to do. And, you know, it's, it's, you know, the stories that I hear, I mean, these are, it's heartbreaking. Um, so I was in Winnipeg this summer visiting with Harvest Manitoba there. And I sat with a volunteer who was doing, they do uh, food bank appointments by phone. And it, you know, there was a woman who came in and it just, this is the story, right? She called in to make an appointment to pick up some food and the volunteer who was so caring and, you know, he's been doing this for years said, you know, it's been a while since you called. Is there, you know, is there any reason why you didn't call a couple weeks ago when you could have had your food? And she just like, there was this silence and she said, I don't want to have to be doing this. I wish that I had food for me and my family and my kids. I don't want to have to make this call. And, you know, so I leave it until it really becomes an issue. And it was, you know, that's, I think, how, how, how is this the world we want? You know, where moms are feeling, you know, at the end of their rope um, and so sad about having to, to make this phone call. Um, I was out in BC in the spring in British Columbia, and I was talking to a woman who runs a, a food bank rather in a very small town. And, you know, she's talking about how the food bank has never, you know, it's a small town in BC, and suddenly homelessness is an issue. It's never been an issue um, there before. And now the food bank has to figure out how to adapt the food that they get because people in, as you would know, in encampments need a different type of food than people who have are housed, right? So how does the food bank respond to these community needs? And it's just, um, I don't know if that's answering the question, but to me, these are, these are people we know. These aren't sort of other types of people. These are, these are us. And as you said, these are people who've fallen on tough times and I don't see why we want a society where this number of people are feeling the stress of not being able to do something as fundamental as feed themselves. Um, and in terms of kids, you know, you know, I think we can all, I mean, we've all felt hunger. We can all identify with that feeling. You know, the reason the word hangry exists is, you know, because of a common experience that you're not your best self when you're um, hungry and, you know, don't know where your next meal's coming from. So if that's a chronic condition, you can imagine that people aren't, you know, showing up in their lives as, you know, you know forget thriving and self-care and all the stuff that, you know, we aspire to. I mean, these are, you know, that's not a happy existence when you're, when you're feeling that sense of hunger. And I think with kids, it's compounded because they're in the developmental stage. And so there are health implications, developmental implications, and social implications in terms of how they get labeled within a school if they're, if they've got behavioral issues. So we as humans, 
we require food. And so it's not like an optional part of our existence. We require food to be able to live and then, you know, move on from just an existing and living to thriving. And so I, I just don't see how we can call ourselves a functioning society when people don't have access to food. Mm, I completely agree. And for one, I do think you're answering the question because I really appreciate like the specific examples that you're giving, that you're grounding it into real experience, because I think, you know, we can talk about statistics all we want and as prevalent as they are, um, it's hard to really grasp onto them sometimes. So I really appreciate that you've been able to share some of your experiences that you've had with folks um, like in this space of advocacy to just really help contextualize that. And I hope to do the same because as you were talking about labeling in schools, it kind of unlocked a memory for me. Um, I don't think I could say I was particularly food insecure growing up. I don't think that's fair to say, but I think what I can say is that, you know, it, it goes probably back to like the spectrum of food insecurity. Um, my family was not the family that had all of the fun snacks. I didn't really have, um, gosh, like, I feel like it proves my point that I honestly could, I would really struggle to list you a lot of the snacks that kids bring to school. Like um, the story I'm about to tell has to do with bear paws. So that one's in the forefront of my brain, but like, what else is there? Like, of course there's granola bars. There's like Nutri-Grain. Um, people have Lunkables, juice boxes. I don't think I ever brought a juice box to school. I was not the kid who had the big little box of snacks. You know, I got, if I was lucky, I maybe had like a sandwich and that was a sandwich I had to make myself. Right. And so, um, we never bought that stuff because it was me and four other kids in a single income household. And so there was a point where it was just, we never really got the more, what's it called? The more superfluous purchases that make you popular with your friends at school, I guess. Um, but then thinking back, the side effect of that for me was I was always the kid who like fixated on what other people had for lunch and always wanted their snacks and things. And this happened at school. And this happened with a childhood friend of mine whose mother ran a daycare. And she, I, I mean, I look back at that whole situation now with a lot of frustration because like my friend's mother growing up did not like me like at all. And I don't know how much he didn't like me or how much he didn't like something about me. I don't know. But like, I look back and it's just like the amount of contempt that he spoke to me with 100% of the time really rubs me the wrong way now as a 21 year old adult. But, you know, back then that was never something I realized um, because her her mindset was like, you live down the street, go home and eat. Stop being here. Stop eating my food, stuff like that. But it was just she had all the fun snacks that I never got. And so I always wanted them. But going back to my story about being labeled in school, there was one time in seventh grade that I think it was just lunch period. And I was sitting with someone like a friend of mine. And then someone from across the room who always kind of bullied me, he himself had his own behavioral issues, his own like upbringing issues. And so this isn't me casting any kind of judgment. But I remember at one point he had a bear paw. Um, which for those unfamiliar, basically like, it's like in a package, it's like these two little cake bread things and they're shaped like what one would imagine a bear paw is shaped like. 
um, they're not that good. <laughs> like they're, they're, yeah, they're not my favorite either. Yeah, like they're not that good. But I don't know. I just I really wanted it. But I remember he had this bear paw, and then he like lifts it into the air, and he's like, "Who wants this bear paw?" And then of course I turn around immediately, and I'm like, "Oh, me!" And so he throws it at me. But then I remember kind of at a, like the peripheral of my vision, um, he was kind of. I don't want to swear, but like he was, he was talking poorly about me to his friend. Um, and I remember, I don't remember specifically if I overheard his words directly or if the person he was talking to came to me after about it, or if someone nearby came to me after about it. But essentially he had done that specifically to prove a point that I would be the one to take it Mm. because like I was always the one who was taking food from other people and I think I forgot about that for years and years and years, but then it kind of been popping up in my brain recently as something that, again, rubs me the wrong way because it's just like, I mean, like that's kind of, ugh, like, I don't know, like that to me is kind of gross. And I think it speaks to what you were saying about kids being labeled either by this, like the school system or by other kids as kids with issues to use a blanket term. And it's like, that wasn't my fault. That was just, I never got the exciting snacks that other kids were spoiled with, you know? I was lucky if I could buy pizza on pizza day. Yeah. I I mean, that's, it's hard, right? Kids are, kids notice things um, about their, their fellow classmates and it's hard to, I hope, I hope it's different now, but yeah, I think, I hope they're better at building community and not and confronting some of that stuff when kids um, point it out. And I'm, I'm certainly not the expert on this particular issue, but um, we are in Canada, the only country, I think in the OECD that is, that doesn't have a school meal program. So, you know, even in the United States and in other countries, um, especially with sort of the, the, I know it's not equally distributed, but the wealth of a country like Canada, we 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 don't have meals in schools that are available to kids. And it's, you know, I know the government has announced that. And like I said, I'm not the expert there, but it is interesting to note that that's not something that we just make available to kids, um, given what we all know of how important it is. And it's also interesting in your story, what you said about, you know, I wasn't, um, you know, we weren't food insecure or, you know, we probably were okay. And it's just, we hear that so much with folks is that they think, oh, I'm not in need because I'm not starving or I'm not going a week without food is, you know, so many more people in our country think that, you know, they're, they're not as much in need than think they are. I don't know if that makes sense, but people think that they don't almost aren't, in need enough to be able to access services or um, that they're not sort of the most in need. And so they'll leave, you know, they'll leave the food banks and other services for people who are really in need. Um, And it's an interesting, I don't know if it's a global phenomenon or if it's a particularly Canadian one, but it's, it's interesting to me that so many people don't think they're in need. Snacks are really important. You need the, you know, uh, you need the fruit and you need the protein and you need all those things to thrive. No, absolutely. And I think what you're saying makes a lot of sense. Cause I mean, like on a psychological level, it always upset me and 
messed with my psyche to see like every kid around me have almost like a surplus of food, like stuff that they never, like that they never finished or just to have like the world's oyster, like on their desk. And that was something I never, ever experienced. And even when I got a job at like 16 and was like starting to buy my own lunches and stuff, that was never something I had. So from a psychological level, that definitely impacts a child because, you know, from a very young age, we condition ourselves or rather society conditions us to compare ourselves to others. And so that was definitely something that was impactful. But going back to what you were saying about a lot of people don't seem to recognize their need as need enough. I think that's absolutely true. Um, And like, like I said too, that it's like, I think I could probably call my personal experience with food growing up, like a form of food insecurity. But I think like where I see this phenomenon of not feeling worthy enough for help definitely I see it mostly of course in talking about homelessness with people and specifically people who are experiencing hidden homelessness which can be defined simply as not having a prospect of safe stable self-affirming housing and so that can be staying in a shelter for a night or um, staying with a friend couch surfing or like living out of a hotel um, stuff like that I've I've spoken to a number of people that would have experienced hidden homelessness, but they were uncomfortable with the idea of anyone insinuating that that was a form of homelessness for them. So, because like, I guess, you know, it's like, if you feel stable, then there, I don't think people can think of themselves as being at such a low until they're fully and completely out of that low. And I think the best way I can explain that is by using an analogy It's the analogy of the frog in a pot of boiling water. So if you put a frog in a pot of 100 degrees Celsius boiling water, that frog is going to jump out immediately because it it will recognize that it's in danger. But if you put a frog in room temperature water and then you, and sorry, this is is a graphic analogy, um, but then you turn on the um, heating element the frog isn't going to realize that it's in danger until it is too late because it's going to continue to acclimate to the water and it's going to sit there and it's going to be comfortable and it's just going to keep thinking it can't get any worse than this. It can't get any worse than this. It can't get any worse than this, but then it does and it's too late. And I think that relates a little bit to what we're talking about in terms of identifying one's food insecurity because to even cite back to um, the mother who was calling in for her appointment, it's like, you don't want it to be a reality. You don't want for this to be something you need to rely on. You don't want for this to be a thing you need to consider in your day-to-day life. And so you don't let yourself think about it as what it is. Before we get back to learning about food insecurity with Food Banks Canada, I want to take a moment to touch base with you, the listener. If you're interested in joining the conversation, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube so we can hear your thoughts on today's episode and you can let us know what you want to see in the future. I want to wish you all a happy Black History Month from Rest Centers. Black History Month is a time to commemorate the forefathers and founders of Black communities, their achievements, and the ongoing struggle for liberation. It also serves to highlight the greatest aspects of Black history. We believe in celebrating the diversity of our Black cultural heritage, and that means covering all of our bases, where we've come from, where we are, and where we're going. 
because not only has Rest Centers worked tirelessly to change the lives of our Black youth, we are just getting started. Black lives matter and Black youth matter every single day. And so we at Rest Centers thank you for your continued support of this podcast, our programs, and our mission to end youth homelessness in Peel. In honor of Black History Month, Rest Centers is hosting two events to celebrate our Black youth, and this is an open invitation for you to participate. First, on February 22nd, from 4 p.m. to 7 p.m., we are hosting a Black Business Showcase at the Rest Center's office, located at 134 Queen Street East in Brampton. Numerous Black businesses from around Peel region are setting up shop for networking, refreshments, and community building opportunities. This showcase will empower Black youth through a networking experience aimed to encourage the pursuit of entrepreneurship, business, and personal excellence. Then, on February 24th, from 3 p.m. to 8 p.m., we are hosting our official Black History Month event called Shades of Black, where we will celebrate the diversity of our Black cultural heritage. Our youth and community members will come together at Greenbrier Recreation Center to explore a series of expositions that represent the vast cultures of the Rest Center's community. We hope to showcase the food, dance, games, music, and attire of Caribbean and African cultures such as Nigeria, Ghana, Grenada, Trinidad, Jamaica, Barbados, St. Lucia, Senegal, and Congo. Through this event, we strive to instill within our youth a sense of cultural identity and pride by helping them to understand the depths of their history and interact with their cultural roots, as well as provide some opportunities to learn from some of our trailblazing Black elders, such as former Ontario politician, the Honorable Zanata Akande. If you would like to attend these events, get involved, or support their impact, give us a call at 905-863-1118, extension 106, to learn more. REST provides a wide variety of services that center around shelter, living, healing, and growing. Our biggest flagship program is the Bridge of Hope, a socially innovative approach to preventing youth homelessness. In collaboration with our bridge builders, the landlords we work with to house and build the capacity for youth to live independently. The Bridge of Hope program provides youth with a sense of belonging that can only be found in a stable home. We are always looking for new bridge builders, so if you have extra space for rent and are interested in housing a youth in need, or if you want to otherwise volunteer with Rest Centers, send an email to info at restcenters.org. That's I-N-F-O at R-E-S-T-C-E-N-T-R-E-S dot org to learn how you can get involved. In addition to volunteer membership, Rest Centers is able to support Youth and Peel through the generous donations of the community. When you donate to Rest Centers, you help us provide rental subsidies to secure affordable housing for youth, provide grocery cards to reduce food insecurity, and provide life skill training to increase the youth's capacity to live independently. Your donation additionally supports youth access to counseling, tenant education, financial literacy training, home economics training, and mentor and employment opportunities. If you want to support Rest Centers with a financial donation, please see the link in the bio for more details. If you want to stay in the loop about what Rest is doing to help our community shelter dignity and support youth experiencing homelessness, you can get to know us on LinkedIn or subscribe to the Rest Centers newsletter for updates. And most importantly, if you are a youth in Peel experiencing or are at risk of experiencing homelessness, we are here to help. Give us a call at 905-863-1118 to get in touch. Now, back to the episode. Exactly. And, you know, if we get back, if we look back at the data, what we were talking about at the beginning, you know, when we say 16% of households in Ontario are food insecure, we don't see 16% of households in Ontario using food banks. And I think it's important to note that 
that's because, like you said, with with homelessness, people are finding other you know solutions. So people are um, maxing out their credit cards to buy food before they come to the food bank. Like people are people are adapting their lives in a way um, to to get food, to get calories um, before they come to a food bank, because that requires, yeah, the admittance, that requires sort of admitting something about your life. So knowing all of that, the fact that we are now seeing the highest food bank use in Canadian history, to me, it's just, you know, you can get really caught up in the numbers and forget the people behind those numbers. And, you know, the number of people in this country who are literally asking themselves, Am I going to pay my rent this month, my utilities this month to keep a roof over my head, or am I going to put food on the table? I mean, the number of people who've had to confront that question and then decide they're going to a food bank is just, I don't know another way of saying it other than it's just devastating and it's heartbreaking to think of so many people in that position right now. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm fully with you on that. I think in regards to food bank usage in Canada being the highest it's ever been, um, I want to ask you about if any of your research has shown any trends or if you personally, like from an empirical perspective, have noticed any trends in the way that food banks are used and how it may have changed. So I guess, you know, maybe 20 years ago, how it's like, what kind of food would you find in a food bank versus what would you find now or maybe the rules around using food banks is has there been any sort of evolution in the last five, 10, 15 years? Yes. So I'll, I'll talk a little bit about um, the data of what we're, of the trends we're seeing of the people using food banks and then talk a little bit about food banks themselves. Um, So firstly, as I said, yeah, right now in 2022, we're seeing the highest uh, use of food banks in Canadian history. Um, we do this count every year so that we can understand who's using food banks. Um, that's our hunger count. And so we know what to advocate for. So we know which policies will actually make a difference and an impact. And I'd say what we're seeing right now is the the cost of living that we're all experiencing, the, you know, the higher cost of living is sort of exposing a broken social safety net. And so when you look behind who's using food banks, um, we're seeing some really concerning trends. So um, the number of seniors using food banks is growing. In general, in Canada, seniors have been well supported. There are income supports available to um, to seniors, including low-income seniors. And so they've tended to be underrepresented in food bank use. But we're seeing that number grow, of course, on a fixed income. As housing costs increase, um, obviously, you're if your income isn't going up to meet to meet your costs, you're going to have to turn to a food bank. Another trend we're seeing are students. So post-secondary students are, um, are using food banks also in record numbers, and it's a growing number of people. And again, I mean, we've talked about kids, but this is another cohort of people. We want these folks in class focusing, you know, we've got some pretty big societal issues that need addressing. This is the, gen, you know, the next generation of folks we need ready and able and willing to to solve these issues. And yet they're going to class um, hungry. And that's, you know, that's obviously incredibly concerning. We're also seeing a rise in low-income workers. So we ask people on intake where their income's coming from. 
Um, and so by and large, it's, um, it's social assistance, it's disability supports, it's pensions, student loans. Um, but we're seeing a growing number of people with, with employment income, which speaks to the need for those incomes to match um, actual costs of living. So those are some of the trends we're seeing right now. In general, what we see is this sort of stubborn number of kids who rely on food banks. So um, about 33% of people who use food banks in Canada are kids, and they represent about 20% of the overall population. So they're overrepresented in food bank use, and we've, you know, we've talked about why that's um, why that's devastating. And another area where we um, where we have seen a trend. So a little bit of context on the numbers as well. So after the 2008 recession, food bank use climbed about 30%. And then it leveled off. It never came back down. It just plateaued. It stayed steady. Um, and then now what we're seeing is another 35% increase um, since before the pandemic. So in a very short span of time, a very significant increase in food bank use. But the demographics of who uses food bank has who uses food banks has really shifted. So single adults living alone um, without sort of other members of their household, no children um, or dependents, um, no other sort of adults living with them make up almost half of the people using food banks. And so that's an, that's an area where we've focused some of our advocacy because government policy tends to focus on children or families or youth or seniors, and no one tends to focus on these single working age adults. So that's that's sort of what we're seeing currently at the food bank system across Canada. Of course, always sort of, you know, local stories matter, whatever, what's happening in industries locally um, will always impact uh, food bank use. But, but nationally, those are the, those are the biggest trends we're watching. Thank you for sharing that. I think that was really eye-opening. And you mentioned a lot of things that I didn't really think about. And the last thing you said about, I forget exactly how you phrased it, but just single working adults, was that, was that it? Yeah, single working age adults make up almost half of the food bank users right now. Mm, okay. And I think that makes sense, actually, because um, my university, um, University of Toronto, Mississauga, we actually have a food bank. And I know we're not the only university to have a food bank. And it's specifically for students, um, but I do think we open up to other individuals in the community as needed because textbooks are expensive and Mississauga is not a university city. It's very expensive to live here. And so um, I think for at least the last five years or so, we've had a food bank on campus. But to that same end, I don't think I don't think a lot of people know about this food bank. So I guess that just speaks to you know, working age as young as 18. <laughs> yeah. And there are, there are many um, campus food banks across, um, across the country. And we've heard from, from some that are really stretched right now. So they're seeing it, you know, we're seeing it come through in the data, but they're seeing it coming through um, every day. And yeah, I mean, one, it's heartbreaking, but two, I think university campuses sometimes are really interesting places where in a lot of ways people do see themselves in community and you know people see a food bank or some sort of food program as 
you know, part of the the commitment they make to making sure their fellow students are cared for. So it's it's fascinating to me. It's really wonderful to see um, communities on campuses come together to support each other, but also, of course, incredibly devastating that food banks are needed on university campuses um, when folks should be um, should be focusing on their study. Yeah, and I guess that's the point almost of the food banks on campus is to encourage that youth are focusing on their studies. But then I feel like it's, I think there's definitely work that needs to be done, especially in terms of support and getting the word out there. Because that's another Mm -hmm. thing I've run into in terms of um, supporting people experiencing homelessness, for example, or even supporting people who are otherwise like financially insecure it's just we have resources out there but they're not at all well advertised for lack of a better phrase and it almost makes me think it just it feels like the sort of self-fulfilling prophecy where social systems in peel aren't well funded because they're not well used but they're not well used because they're not well advertised and if they're not well advertised and no one knows to use them. And so the people who need them don't use them, which means their numbers are low, which means they don't get funded. You see what I'm doing here? It's a circle. (laughs) Yeah. And it's interesting to me. I have a few thoughts on that. One is, um, you know, food banks themselves uh, being part of this ecosystem of community supports. There's some interesting research out of Quebec and we've heard this anecdotally for years is that often a food bank is the first place someone goes when their life sort of hits tough times and they're trying to make it all work. And so how can food banks be that connector to other social supports available? And, and there are some food banks across the country that are doing some really interesting work about how to make sure the food bank isn't just about a place where you get food, but it's also a place where you learn about some of the other supports that might be available to you in your community. Another thing it makes me think about is the, the growth that we're seeing in the number of food banks that offer things like tax clinics. So there are not just community supports available, but there are income supports available um, to folks. And we know that those aren't being all claimed. So, you know, food banks seeing as part of their role of helping people um, to food security, um, connecting people to filing taxes so that they can access benefits that will make potentially mean the difference between needing the food bank or not needing the food bank. Um, And Mississauga is one that does um, offer the tax clinics. And I don't have their data off the top, but I know in Saskatoon, they offer tax clinics and it's millions of dollars um, that they're able to return to the community because people are simply filing their taxes. I mean, there's a whole conversation to be had about why people don't want to file taxes and that, but in general, um, people are eligible for benefits And if they're not filing their taxes, they're not accessing those benefits. And so how do we make sure we are building, as you talked about in the beginning, coalitions where people don't have to navigate so much complexity to be able to access services and support that they need? It's, it's, I mean, you, I mean, you're close to this as well, but it's a lot of work um, to, to navigate a system when you're poor or when you're experiencing homelessness or when you're experiencing food insecurity. Yeah. Wow. Aggressively. So honestly, the tax clinic isn't even something I thought of, or even, you know, like getting the benefits back because the other thing too, that, um, 
if I'm remembering correctly, for those interested, I think episode five loosely touches on this in the discussion of homeless health care and why it's so difficult to access health care while experiencing homelessness. That's actually really interesting and something I neglected to consider. That kind of just blew my mind. It's just the idea of something as fundamental as taxes. And I say fundamental as in it's probably it's it's probably the biggest thing that the government needs you to do slash wants you to do is your taxes. <laughs> but then if if you don't even have an address, how like that's just it's a huge thing that can have the opportunity to help, quote unquote. <laughs> um, I'm a little hesitant to say that, but um, <laughs> do your taxes, <laughs> but still do your taxes. It's the law. But that it's just, yeah, so many people just can't do their taxes and therefore they can't receive like some of the benefits you're talking about because there's just no way. And I think you're absolutely correct in saying that it's aggressively difficult to access supports or navigate the system while experiencing homelessness because there is no one there to help you. Yeah. And I, I hear you with, I I get there are barriers and I get why people, you know, we hear all the time, you know, I don't want to file my taxes because, you know, I don't have a trusting relationship with institutions, governments, and the like. In general, if you're um, low income, obviously you're going to be the recipient of, of, of benefits, which you just you know educate you know doing some of that education work is part of the tax clinic program at food banks, but it's really also just navigating. I mean, you know, it's it's volunteers or um, people who work at food banks who know how to do this. It's not easy. I mean, I. I do not have a fun time filing my taxes. I know no one does. And so it's just, you know, being there to support people through that. But things like the Canada Child Benefit, you know, that could be hundreds of dollars a month for someone. And that's the difference between being able to be, you know, more securely housed or, you know, put food on the table for your kids or having to rely on, you know, food banks and other community services. So um, it's not the whole puzzle, obviously, but I do think getting people access to this, to the benefits that they already are eligible for and fully qualify for is one, you know, puzzle piece that, that we can maybe expand across the country. Agreed. I think just having easier access support that is accessible and intuitive is absolutely important. And honestly, you saying this kind of preempted my last question, which is actually the question I ask all of my guests. No one is allowed to escape it. No one has escaped it yet. And that's not starting today. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But the question I ask everyone is, where do you want this discussion to go? What should I and our listeners tackle first? Hmm. Um, That's a very good question. You know, Food Banks Canada really sees our role as advocating for policy change. And I, what I want, what I hope people hear from some of what I've said, um, which I hope is useful, is just I really do believe there is a path out of this level of food insecurity in Canada. I really have a lot of hope that we have an opportunity to address food insecurity at a systemic level, at a policy level, and with governments 
so that this isn't a reality we have to accept. Um, you know, we talk a lot about what makes social change. How do we get governments to care? And quite frankly, governments have the courage to act and care when there's a, enough of us with a loud enough voice who are saying, you know, this this current status quo is unacceptable. And so, you know, we we are advocating for, you know, one of our things that we advocate for is around affordable housing, because obviously you can't separate housing from from food insecurity. We know if people have access to housing, they're going to be more food insecure. So how can we come together to advocate for affordable housing investments, also money in people's pocket to pay for housing? Um, we think there should be a minimum income floor so that people aren't falling below, you know, sometimes half the poverty line um, because because of, you know, their life circumstance. Um, you know, there's no jurisdiction in this country that adequately supports people with disabilities, for example, right? Um, so how do we make sure that people with disabilities aren't in a position where it's like a forced visit to the food bank? Um, and, you know, one thing we didn't get into or talk about was the North. And I know we're focusing on on Peel region, um, but in the spirit of us all being connected, when you look at the far North in Canada, the number of people who are food insecure jumps from 16% we've got here to 60% in Nunavut. And so um, how do we make sure that we're lending our voice so that people who are experiencing sort of crisis levels of food insecurity in the north whether that's northern ontario or in the you know in the territories how can we lend our voice so that we're we're collectively advocating for solutions that are community led um, but say that it's not okay in in our country that th that number of people are going hungry Food insecurity is a complicated issue that a lot of people don't identify with, even if they should, all because of the stigma surrounding it. Reliance on food banks is only going up, but food banks can also be the ticket to solving some serious financial insecurities. If we want to help folks bounce back before it's too late, especially working age and independent young adults, we need to support food programs to give folks the grace they deserve. That wraps up this episode of Homelessness and Hiding, Our Youth Between the Cracks. If you want to follow up with Food Banks Canada, all of their social media are in the description, and you can visit their website, foodbankscanada.ca, for more information. That's F-O-O-D-B-A-N-K-S-C-A-N-A-D-A dot C-A for more information. If you are interested in supporting a cause tackling youth homelessness, I invite you to visit our website, restcenters.org. That's R-E-S-T-C-E-N-T-R-E-S dot -E -E org to learn more about our mission and how you can support the cause. If you found solace here, learned something new, or think we have something of value to offer, you can subscribe to the show so you'll never miss an episode. Until next time, I'm Maya Moniz, signing off. This podcast has been brought to you by The Rest Centers through the special dedication of our advocacy podcast coordinator, Maya Moniz, our director of youth engagement, Romaine Redman, and Rest's executive director and founder, Dag McCoy. This podcast is also brought to you by the Peel Alliance to End Homelessness and the special dedication of their program coordinator and analyst, Daphne Nussbaum. The thoughts and opinions expressed in this podcast are exclusively those of the hosts and guests involved and have no affiliation with the Restoration and Empowerment for Social Transition Center 